0: Hello and welcome to another UK Column interview. I'm Debbie Evans and for those of you who may not know, I am an NHS-trained state-registered nurse, although I'm retired now, and I was also a government advisor at the Department of Health for five years on the Autism Programme Board, so I've seen behind the curtains. So my question today to my two guests, who I will introduce to you in a minute, is Is the NHS making us sick? Today, um, only on the news just just announced, uh, 340,000 people died on the waiting list, on the NHS waiting list in 2022. This is 100,000 up since records started. You might be interested in a couple more statistics. In 2022, 40,000 nurses left the NHS ahead of retirement. Um, In social care, there are 160,000 vacancies. The NHS has a third of the beds that Germany have and half the beds that France have. These facts and figures can be taken, actually, from my next guest's uh, book, uh, 200 Questions for the Future of the NHS and The Elephant in the Room, written by Roy Lilly and Ed Smith. Now, Roy is a health policy advisor, former chairman of Homewood NHS Trust in Surrey, former mayor. He's got his fingers in so many pies and he's authored so many papers and books and also has an e-letter that goes out to 300,000 NHS managers all over the place. And Roy, I'm just very grateful for your time. Welcome back to UK Column. Thank you.
1: It's a great pleasure to be back. And thank you very much. Thank
0: you. Well, Roy, we're certainly going to have a very interesting discussion because I've also I'm delighted to have back Dr. Duncan White, who's a nursing care systems consultant, but he's also a trained registered general nurse. And he's worked with the Department of Health, the Department of Business and Innovation, CQC, which I'm sure we'll come on to and skills for care. To Duncan White, welcome back to UK Column and thank you so much for agreeing to to return for another discussion.
2: Pleasure to be here.
0: We're going to be able to have a debate about the NHS. So my question is to you both. As a nurse, the NHS is unrecognisable from when I trained and we can talk about that a bit more in detail. But my question is, is have we politicised the NHS? Has the relationship with the public failed? And do the public trust the NHS anymore? And actually, are the public and the staff both protected? So is the NHS too sick to fix? Can I go to you first, Roy? What do you think?
1: Well, I, I mean, these are big questions, aren't they? And yeah. Um... I think that we'll probably get to the end of it uh, after we've been broadcasting for about 48 hours but we'll see we'll see what we can do to to, to get it going. I mean if we take the the, the the I mean you you you've broken it down into three areas really the politicized the relationship with the public and is it too sick to fix. Uh, let's sort of take it from the front to the back is it too sick to fix well No, I don't think it is, because I think we've got to figure out, okay, what is wrong with the NHS, and and what are the sicknesses that we're trying to fix? And it seems to me that we are in the fix that we're in, really, because of what happened some time ago. If we cast our minds back to 2009, 2010, when we had the world banking crisis, and everybody was running around trying to bail out the banks, there followed that. Um, about 10 years really of austerity. George Osborne was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. We had a bit of it with a coalition government with the Lib Dems and then the Tories. And it was during that period that, in order to fix the economy, um, Osborne decided on um, uh, a sort of market driven austerity process to cut uh, government expenditure. Now, it's worth pointing out, I think, that since the day and hour the NHS started on the 5th of July 1948 to today, if you look at the NHS funding, you'll see that the historical funding level is just under 4%, 3.8%. So we know that if the NHS has around 4%, it can kind of keep running up the down escalator and broadly keep its head above water. What happened in those 10 austerity years was eight eight years, I think, uh, of austerity. The NHS had under 2% funding, and it was flatline. It was about 1.8%. And it was during that period that I think the damage was done. Um, we didn't uh, re- recruit enough nurses, train enough doctors, buy enough kit, invest enough in innovation, repair enough hospitals. I mean, we've got a ten billion backlog of, of hospitals now. So we had this very long period where... The NHS really wasn't very well served. And then, of course, we went into COVID. And we forget, don't we, what we, what it was like before COVID. Before COVID, we had a waiting list of 4.5 million. And I remember doing programs at the time saying, you know, 4.5 million, this is heretic, uh, uh, um, horrendous. Uh, it's never been this bad before. It's a, it's a record, you know. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, of course, also, we had uh, 40,000 vacancies in nursing. Along comes COVID, everything gets forgotten. The government chuck a whole load of money at stuff, everything gets turned upside down, and now we're coming out. So out of COVID. We come out of COVID because people didn't uh, present with their their difficulties and symptoms and what have you. So we come out of COVID with about 7.5, 7.3, I think it was, million people on the waiting list. We almost doubled it. Uh, And we had uh, 160,000 vacancies or something across the piece. Uh, And so really, where I think we are now, to sorry, to give you a rather long-winded answer, but is it too sick to fix? I think it needs fixing because of that period of austerity funding and neglect. And so we're in a situation now where we're running to try and keep up. So is it too sick to fix? No, it isn't what would be my prescription for fixing it? Well, frankly, it needs a period of sustained and sensible funding and to be left alone to sort itself out. And I pray in aid um, um, uh, to that answer, the fact that, you know, the NHS, despite everything else that was going on, managed to get the two-year waiting list down to almost nothing after COVID. So it can function, it can function very well. It's still got a shortage of people and will have for the next 10 years. And of course, it's the blessed strikes that are causing so much difficulty that no doubt we'll get on to talk to in a minute. So is it too sick to fix? Well, it's certainly sick. It's sick because of the problems that it's had in the past and the chickens really are coming home to roost. Can it be fixed? Yes, I think so with a period of sort of calm and sensible management uh, and, and some sensible funding. So I, th- I think the answer is, is it too sick to fix? My answer is no.
0: Well, that's interesting, Roy, because I think a lot of our audience that are watching will be maybe um, agreeing to disagree with you on that. And yeah. they'll be saying it is too sick to fix because it's not fixing me. Um, and we yes. have these huge waiting lists. So I think and and, and I think with Duncan, um, Duncan's got some some solutions. And so I think my question is the same, really, for you, Duncan, is the NHS too sick to fix and is it worth papering over the cracks or do we start again is is there another model we should be using because I mean but from uh, Roy's own writings and and I've read a lot of Roy what Roy has written Roy's got the um if you like a mantra of think national act local so how does this play into the NHS moving forward do you think
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Roy has brought up some very uh, interesting points and has painted a a chronology almost of of sort of the issues that have uh, surfaced over recent uh, months and years. Um, But I would go so far as to suggest that what Roy has listed are symptoms of the disease rather than the disease itself. And I think in terms of is it too sick to... uh, to mend, to repair, I, I would go so far as to say, why would you want to mend and repair it in its current state? Um, it clearly has not adapted to the pressures and the changes over the last 20, 25 years. The answer has always been from both the Department of Health and the NHS managerial infrastructure to, ch- to chuck more at it, rather than redesigning reconfiguring, reshaping in response to changing demographics, changing dynamics and changing expectations. And I think, you know, the idea that it can be fixed uh, with a a conglomeration of more of the same over and over again uh, is unlikely to have any material impact. And yes, okay, Blair chucked Tens of millions at it to reduce waiting lists and, and one thing and another. And that worked. And yes, of course, you can chuck money at it ad infinitum forever more in a day. But the reality is, where do we want to be in five, seven, 10, 15 years' time? How can we go on like this over that period of time when there are massive changes in the offing? Um, and I noticed uh, that the, the book that you quoted that, that had been written by Roy and his colleague, it talks in terms of information technology uh, and technological developments. But if you take into account more recent developments that, that perhaps um, we should be looking at more wholesomely, such as artificial intelligence and nan- nanotechnology, the, the environment in which healthcare generically, generally, macrocosmically functions is going to be bashed out of all shape that we would recognize today. And I think we run the risk of chucking more reorganization or disreorganization at it, ad infinitum, to try and paper over the cracks, to try and create alibis as to why it's not working, what's not happening properly, and so on and so forth. So I think really the answer has to be, We have to step back, stop thinking about the NHS in terms of uh, customer and service provider and all that sort of stuff, you know, uh, cash limits and whatever, and think in terms of how do we want to design a system that can respond more effectively, and that's up for, you know, how do you judge, how do you measure effectively? How do we create a system that is going to be more effective in the next 10 to 15 years, without necessarily going into vast expenses, vast reorganizations, chucking more and more levels of management at it, you know, and, and uh, you know Jeremy Hunt created NHS England as a barrier between him and reality, I think. And I think, you know, you, you have to disassemble that sort of approach. So I think we're... Uh, We're on the cusp of big things happening, and I don't think that the NHS, in anything like its current form, is going to be equipped or capable of addressing those changes. So I think we need to do uh, far more radical thinking about it. And I suppose, from a very personal uh, experience, I I was uh, on the team developing ambulatory and minimally invasive surgery, bedless hospitals. And it, it proved absolutely unparalleled in its effectiveness. Now, you had no beds in a hospital, maximum stay of 22 hours, um, and a high turnover. Yes, it costs money. It's not cheap, but you're focusing your resources where it works, how it works, and when it works, doing the right thing at the right place for the right problems with the right people. And quite often, I think the NHS misses that trick. So I think we have to. Uh, I reiterate, I think we have to step back from looking at the NHS as simply a a cash cow, a a, a financial equation. And then I think secondly, and sorry if I'm going on a bit too much here, but I think secondly, and this partly picks up on Roy's point, we've just got to get the politicians out of it. We have got to get it out of the political football field that it's uh, come to occupy over the years. And until we get the politicians out of it, till we get the political agenda to recognize that it is not a football that it can kick around forevermore in a day, then we are going to be in this position endlessly, where we are bounced between political initiatives, spending programs, all of which are alibis for or sticking plaster covering over the cracks. So... I think probably in an answer, a direct answer to your question: Is it too sick to, to, to fix? Yeah.
0: Well, you know, Duncan, before before I ask you to respond to that, Roy, because I I really would love you to respond to that. I just want to also highlight you 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 picked up there on NHS England. And we've seen this huge fragmentation within the NHS. In my day, it was my hospital and and that was it. We didn't have trusts, So it was far more of a, a family environment, if you like. Um, since then, since uh, NHS England, since CQC, since we've broken things up, NHS Confederation. I also just want to highlight too, the UK HSA, the UK Health Security Agency, because all of a sudden health, NHS seems to have been fused with security, um, and that was replacing, obviously, Public Health England. And the CEO of UKHSA, Jenny Harris, actually said, you know, in effect, she was a spook. So the NHS seems to have become almost a spy on us all, which concerns me too. So in, in answer to my own question, I do believe the NHS is far too sick to save. And What would you, Roy, do when you're standing back to look at it um, from a distance?
2: Well, I
1: I mean, I don't think Duncan and I are a million miles apart. I mean, the question was, is he too sick to fix? And he's saying there are things that he would do to fix it. Uh, uh, and uh, I think I think he's right. I mean, there's no question that the NHS can't stand still in the face of innovation and new technologies. The difficulty is, of course, that he's never had the money really to invest properly in it. We had a, a disastrous attempt at it under labor, uh, which uh, came to nothing. Um, and since then, you know, we, there's, there's been very little investment. I mean, it is a fact that, that when people hear this, they, they they can scarcely believe it. 20% of our hospitals have no electronic patient health record. They're still working on shoving bits of paper around on supermarket trolleys to deliver them to to various clinics. So, the, I mean, the, there is certainly the, uh, the potential is there to be innovative and the potential is there to use that innovation. If you look, for example, at um, uh, artificial intelligence, I mean, actually it's not artificial intelligence, it's machine learning, but we're using, the NHS is using machine learning now, in a lot of it's radiology, where, for example, if you go for a a breast screening, it's it's very likely that the outcome of the breast screen will be looked at um, uh, at a machine, and it will compare your image against all the other images it's holding in its system um, and say, does this this image look like it's cancer? And then if it does, it flags it up, and then somebody has a look at it, and we go from there. So the technologies are in play now. They're not in play universally, that's for sure, and the investment hasn't been uh, universal enough or sustained enough. And, you know, we we had... uh, 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 And I think... uh, it's worth just kind of pausing that bit there for a minute to to, to look at uh, some of the structural things that have happened. I mean, it, it, the big damage, I think, was done in 2012 by the uh, Lansley reforms, which, and it was the Lansley reforms that put NHS England in place. And the purpose of that was to distance ministers from the day-to-day decisions that were being made on the operational management of the health service. The fact is it never worked, and the fact is that ministers wouldn't keep their fingers out of it. And even today, we've got uh, Steve Barclay, who's sort of poking his nose in on a daily basis, micromanaging the NHS. So I mean, I agree with you uh, uh, about the issue of the political interference. it was Lansley who tried to separate the two. In fact, he said he wanted to make NHS England a bit like the the Bank of England monetary policy, where he was responsible for delivering some specifics, uh, and the politicians would let them get, in, get on with it. But you can't do that because every Wednesday uh, in Parliament, the Secretary of State for Health stands up and answers questions, and somebody on the other bench is going to say, my Constituent Mrs Brown has been waiting God knows how long for a hip operation at the you know the St Jude Hospital in my constituency. When is she going to get a hip operation? Uh, and of course the Secretary of State then has to roll up his sleeves and have a look at the waiting list. So it, it, it's that dynamic that makes things so much more more difficult. And to try uh, and keep them out of the operational management of the NHS is really very difficult. So I don't think, I, 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 the question is, is it too sick to fix? No, it's not too sick to fix. It, it, is it too sick um, to be able to take on a rich diet of investment and innovative change? I think that there is a difficulty with that, because at the moment, the distractions are just horrendous in, in with uh, the waiting list targets and the fact that Waiting list targets are now something that the Prime Minister has promised that he's going to deliver before the the next election. the The pressures on hospitals now as a result, of that are horrendous. And of course, we've got the strikes which ministers don't appear to be minded to roll up their sleeves and try and resolve. and um and I mean you know, to give you an example, the last two days of the consultant strike added nearly uh, I think it's nearly fifty thousand people back onto the waiting list. Uh, and since all the strikes have been going, uh, the NHS has seen eight hundred thousand people go back on the waiting list because of the strike. So the you know the NHS is running up the down escalator, to try, and and uh, trying to keep going. Are right? just trying to keep up? So there's a, there's a lot. I mean, certainly there is a lot that could be invested in, and I agree with that. And I've been a proponent of that for a long time. But the 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 likelihood of it happening at a time. Really, where the government doesn't want to spend any money or anything, uh, I think is is pretty uh, is pretty unlikely. Really, I think I think as much as we may not want it to happen, I think the NHS is going to have to muddle through to the election, and then we'll see what comes out of the election. I mean, Labour are promising the earth, but we'll see.
0: Well, it's interesting you said you mentioned Labour actually, but it, it brings me on to a, a couple of things. I mean, anecdotally, from my, one of my family was transported all the way from Cornwall to London with the full team from Cornwall uh, to have a heart procedure at a private hospital, the Wellington, in London. Uh, we've got GP practices that are being bought up by United States companies such as Centene. Um, we've also got massive involvement with a public uh, a public private partnership. A lot of the pharmaceutical companies um, are heavily invested in the NHS. A lot of the think tanks, such as the Tony Blair Institute for Change, are involved. So this public private partnership with philanthropists, etc., exists. And and I think um, on your on your own uh, e letter, Roy, you mentioned a, a bubble and spread of civil servants and Duncan's been in the land of civil servants as have I. Um, So I'm gonna throw this one across to to Duncan if I might in that we seem to see the NHS becoming a private company, almost this public-private partnership seems to be maybe not quite so balanced and the impact of the think tanks is obviously extremely powerful. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I think that is all part of the symptoms of, of where it's all starting to fragment and become disaggregated. Um, but I think it's 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 fairly uh, essential to make uh, uh, make it clear from the outset that I don't think that um, investment from industry uh, and others is is necessarily a bad thing. And certainly, if you look at other healthcare systems globally, then they are almost universally predicated on some form of mix. Um, It's quite a unique British undertaking that we seem to have built this glass wall around health and social care provision, or particularly healthcare provision, where the intrusion of others, of whatever ilk, is seen as being privatisation, Americanisation. And and I I don't see it like that. I think if we were to accept and recognise the value that other entities, other agencies, organisations can bring to delivering effective and efficient healthcare uh, is recognised and and accepted and, and taken on board in a very constructive and positive way, I think we would have a much better health system I think the idea that we've we've put this sort of idea of privatisation is is universally abhorrent and unacceptable and cannot be. And certainly there are political elements that would uh, scream from the rooftops that we are selling the NHS, selling our NHS, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think we have to make a, a, quite a clear difference between denationalisation and depoliticisation. And I think, you know, if, if we are to really embrace change and embrace the future that uh, is coming our way. The NHS will never have the resources, be that manpower, woman uh, womanpower, um, financial resources, scientific resources, to embrace the changes that are going to happen over the next seven to 20 years or so, whatever. So I think, you know, it has to embrace other agencies, other f- funding streams, other skills streams, uh in order to develop and and provide 21st century healthcare it cannot do it on its own unless you chuck massive amounts of money at it now if you look at the funding of it and roy roy picked up on a couple of funding issues there i mean currently it's taking up you know best part of 20% of G- gdp it's unsustainable you know, uh, every pound that goes into the NHS is taken away from education, defence, law and order, whatever, whatever. And you know, we we have to think in terms of you know, in twenty years' time, at the current rate of progress, it's going to be taking up what twenty five, twenty seven, thirty percent of GDP. It, it's it's totally unsustainable, ethically, morally, and financially. And if you look at places like Barnet, uh, local authority, who said. I don't know, maybe it was five years ago, that at the current rate of progress, social care would take up 100% of Barnet's income, Barnett Council's income. And the finance director there drew the jaws of doom, a spreadsheet that showed the demographics and the funding, and it would just gobble up the entire local authority's expenditure, funding streams. And in the same way, the NHS is going to do very, uh, at risk of doing very similar. Uh, so we have to be very careful about how we approach the future. And I think the idea that we should prohibit, proscribe external agencies from having a, a role to play in developing, delivering, and sustaining the NHS over the next couple of decades, certainly, is Not going to work. It's as simple as that. It's not going to work. Now, I know that's going to upset quite a lot of people uh, in terms of, you know, I'm proclaiming that we should privatise it. I'm not. I'm saying that we have to rethink it. And I think part of that rethinking has to be accepting the immutable fact that it can't go on in the way that it has and that the uh, UK PLC, the, the government, are not going to be able to chuck sufficient cash at it to keep it going in its current format. Everything for everybody, every time they need it. It's it's not going to happen.
0: So what I would like to just bring to your attention, um, Roy, as well, is that we get a lot of emails and letters from members of the public who are absolutely horrified at the wastage, the waste of money that is going on in the NHS at the moment. Many are telling us that they're being sent tests through the post uh, when they're perfectly well uh, and they don't need testing. But these tests include pots and pieces of paper and spatulas and uh, you know prepaid postage back. And even if they've opted out, they're getting these tests. We're also looking at a lot of pharma pharmaceuticals being used when. Expensive pharmaceuticals used when perhaps they don't need to be used. So we're seeing a lot of wastage going on in the NHS. Um, No no training we'll come on to perhaps in a minute. But what's your response to what Duncan's just said and the concerns from the public that we are effectively running a two-tier system and we are wasting huge amounts of money?
1: Uh, well, I expect uh, there is waste in the NHS. It, it's uh, it's the biggest organisation that we've got. And I think there are any big organisations, there are times where money can be spent better. Uh, I think it's important, just to what I think of it, to not to confuse testing with screening. Um, and the, the cardboard packets that people are getting is probably for, for the bowel screening programme, uh, which uh, does save lives and is and is worth doing. And as far as prescribing is concerned, I think I'm right in saying, I think we have the highest level of generic prescribing of any of the, uh, of the European Union comparators. So I'm not, not quite sure that I agree with that. Look, as far as the private sector is concerned, I've, n- I've never met anybody in the NHS that's got any problem with the private sector. Um, yeah. uh, and yeah. if, you, if you want to contract with the private sector, that's fine. It's worth pointing out that we have more contracts now with the private sector than we did in 2019. So this is, we have the highest level of contracting. Um, It's worth also pointing out that at the moment, a lot of the private companies uh, don't really want to contract with the NHS. I mean, I, I often get asked, well, why don't we use the private sector to get some of the waiting list down? Well, fact is we are, But the the other side of that coin is there was um, a Langbrecen report, which they're a company that analyzes the private sector, came out a couple of weeks ago. And they were saying that at the moment, self-pay for things like hip operations and knees and hernias and cataracts are an absolute Klondike for them because they are Mm. performing Mm. these operations at premium. Whereas if they do them for the NHS, they do them at what's called tariff, which is the same amount of money that the NHS charges itself, because that's the law in the 2012 legislation. The NHS, you can't contract for more than the NHS would pay itself. So the private sector actually, thanks very much, don't really want to contract the NHS because at the moment they're making a fortune out of self-pay. And as far as the viability is concerned, I mean, Centine, Uh, in a press release yesterday, announced they were selling 60 GP practices because they're not making any money out of it. Babylon have folded here, which is another one of the uh, docs on your phone type thing. that They've just folded because they didn't make any money either. And Circle, if you remember, cast your mind back, we actually gave Circle, gave Circle Hinchinbrook Hospital and said, okay, if you think you can run it better, run it. Here it is. And what happened within three years? They paid five million pounds to get out of the contract because they were losing money. So I don't think there's any, uh, I don't think there's any resistance. So it's certainly not that I'm aware of that that says we don't want to do business with the NHS. And and if you look at the you know the piece as a whole, the, the issue is there's really no money in it. That's the problem. The um, mm. and as far as you know international comparisons are concerned, the average GDP. Uh, for healthcare across the OECD is about 9.7% um, in other countries. That, you know, that's the average. Well, we're smack on the, uh, the OECD the average at the moment. We never used to be, but we are back up to the average. And it is perfectly true, of course, that healthcare will cost more money. Uh, but somebody's got to pay for it somehow or other. I mean, you either take your insurance premiums out of your left-hand pocket and your taxes out of your right-hand pocket, but it's still your trousers. Somebody has still got to pay. There's no such thing as free health care. So the question then becomes, okay, what's cheaper? Is it cheaper for it to be uh, run on, a, on an aggregated basis uh, through taxation? Uh, or is it better to have a, a plethora of insurance companies who are all trying to uh, right uh, you know differently and what have you i think the general trend across europe that i've seen is that the, there is a, a movement now towards a much more centralized um system and i read um uh, a couple of days ago i think in germany which has a federalized healthcare system um they're actually closing hospitals because they've realized that they're spending uh, um that they've got they've actually well, they're overbedded actually they've got too many hospitals so they're closing hospitals so I I think if the answer to the future um, is we've got to spend more money and we don't want to spend it, well, then we won't have any healthcare system. If the answer to the future is how do we invest in the system so the whole thing runs a lot more efficiently, like I say, you know, 20% of hospitals don't even have an electronic health record, then I think that's probably where the future does lie. And it's worth also bearing in mind, I think, when we talk about the private sector. There is no such thing as a private sector in this country. There is just a number of insurance companies and others that provide the infrastructure for NHS doctors to operate uh, privately uh, outside their contracted hours in the NHS. And, you know, if you're an anesthetist, you're making a fortune at the moment. And uh, anybody who's ever had private healthcare will tell you probably, I'm sure, that the operation took place in the evening or a weekend when the when the surgeon wasn't being a consultant in the NHS. We don't have a developed healthcare system. Uh, and the private healthcare system doesn't contribute to training. Um, and it only uses NHS staff. Without the NHS, the uh, I mean, if we passed the law that says no NHS-trained staff can work in the private sector, the private sector would close down. Because it's only, really, NHS people moonlighting. So there's a lot more complexity to this than just saying, you know, we need to do more with the private sector. Fine. What? And do they want
0: to? Before I throw my next question to both of you, Duncan, would you is there anything you'd like to say in response there to, to Roy?
2: Uh, yeah, I suppose just from an observational point of view. I mean, certainly... Um, operations you know keep it as simple as possible you know operations conducted in the so-called private sector yes they are absolutely um uh, nhs doctors in their spare time and their afternoons off or whatever and and yes that that is unquestionably thing uh, the situation but i think you know there there are other operation uh, other situations that can be um uh, the skills and uh, attributes and the funding from private sector can be uh, utilised far better than just in direct patient care. And you know, the, the Gordon Brown's infamous private finance initiatives were an attempt to get the private sector involved in capitalising uh, capital investments into the uh, into the NHS and, and look at what's happened there you know, in terms of indebtedness uh, and hospitals trying to buy buy contracts out because of the uh, vast expenditure involved in them but i think you know there is so much going on in terms of science technology uh, and and, you, and roy spoke earlier about you know i can't remember the figure you quoted um in terms of 20 i think it was 20 percent or thereabouts hospitals still rely on shopping trolleys and paperwork you know and and yes um that sort of thing is just nonsensical it's a waste of time effort and everybody's uh, money so yeah i mean there are organizations out there that can can undertake those sorts of activities, and if you remember the uh, the NHS IT spine that put us back nearly fourteen billion quid before it was chucked because it just wouldn't work, didn't work, um, and people walked out on it, and various IT uh, companies who were supposed to be bolting onto the spine uh, backed out because it wasn't working. You know, it's this fragmented approach we always have to to involving others that I think is is part of the root problem. I think if we were to take on board that there are sectors, there are organisations, industries out there that can do things better in a far more consolidated and coherent way, I think we would, we would be far better off. And I think, you know, okay, that's a bit abstract in terms of its sort of general nature. But, I mean, you know, we, we could go into lots of detail about specifics and if you look at foreign overseas health provision, uh, the idea that everything is consolidated into one organizational umbrella is an anathema. Uh, you know, it just doesn't happen. Having worked overseas, you, you have different organizations performing different functions very effectively, very timely. Um, and, you know, and my own personal experience was with pathology where, you know, turnaround time was minutes and hours rather than days and weeks. And having been a patient in the NHS, you're held in hospital for three days waiting for the results to come back. Insanity. Absolute insanity. Yeah, so
1: I, I think if, I, if, if I just may uh, I, think, I think Duncan's right, um, and it, I mean, he, he raised you know, three quite interesting things, really. I mean, first of all is the NHS spine. Well, the NHS spine uh, actually gave us uh, NH's emails. Uh, and that was the purpose of the spine. And so, without the spine, we wouldn't have emails. So uh, I, I'm not too sure I agree with him uh, about that. I mean, I certainly I do agree there was political interference. And and without any notice, uh, the NHS that's, that was supposed then to de- develop a choose and book system, which was far too complicated for the time. There was no electronic system like it. Everything was manually done. And, and it ground to a halt, and understandably, because it was too ambitious. And if you look at PFI, I mean, the PFI is really interesting, because mm. Gordon Brown yeah. really, really pushed PFI, and it was because it was off balance sheet. Um, so it meant that the debt that was accumulated in, in building hospitals was not on the government's balance sheet. And it wasn't until later in the PFI history that the when the European Union uh, changed uh, uh, in their EU accounting rules where they said all debt uh, uh, um, incurred by, uh, all expenditure incurred by government, however it is accumulated, however it's done, is government debt. So what they said was all of this big lump of money that was sitting here, which was PFI debt, suddenly had to go back on to the government's balance sheet. And then that then pushed the UK economy beyond the debt to uh, GDP ratio that to fulfill the, the EU requirements. That's how that started to go wrong. In addition to that, of course, the expectation was that if you put together Uh, the building of a hospital with the running of the services of the hospital, the aggregated cost will be cheaper than you could borrow money from the treasury. Well, of course, that's a nonsense because the the treasury sets the borrowing limits and the borrowing levels for everybody. So um, PFI really was a a fraud to start with, uh, and it was just a way of getting borrowing off the balance sheet, and as I say, the European Union put a stop to it. And finally, uh, the the interesting thing that Duncan raises about um, uh, uh, laboratory tests and what have you. Now, uh, the NHS have tried twice to do that. The, the last one, I think, was that you, if you're correct, if I'm wrong here, the Black Report uh, that said that why don't we aggregate these tests? Uh, we, we tried to do it in the we let contracts. And in the end, we couldn't find private sector organizations that were big enough and robust enough to handle like five million tests uh, a day. So, uh, I mean, that that failed at the first uh, hurdle as well. The interesting thing is, though, since then, a lot of the testing regimes have changed and the technology has advanced. So now a lot of the tests that were done at that time are now done near patient. And in fact, there are hospitals now that are doing routine testing actually on the wards. So the technology has kind of taken that question um, out of the uh, out of the arena. So there's yeah. you know three uh, examples of where it's not quite what it looks like.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I, I cite those uh, uh, as examples. I mean certainly the PFI situation was recognised from the outset as being a, a political manoeuvre, uh, some some clever accounting on part of the, the government. Gordon Brown to get that that level of expenditure off the books I mean everybody knew that that was no great surprise Um, so when that turned turtle I think a lot of people were uh, less than surprised that it actually did go pear-shaped and certainly as I've mentioned earlier in terms of technology advances having testing at the bedside you know let alone the ward but actually at the bedside yes i mean that is what is going to be happening um but that doesn't mean that you have to have it provided I- internally uh you know protected employment uh and, and departments within the hospital delivering that stuff and, and i say that because my own personal experience has been you know things like ecgs uh, ekgs um Uh, phlebotomy all those sorts of things you know they they happen mechanically you know routinely and you have teams of people touring the hospital performing all these things and yes of course that does happen to an extent in the nhs but you know my own personal experience in, in, uh, in terms of designing clinical systems clinical pathways operational functional operational programs for whole hospitals is that you get in that expertise you buy in that tertiary expertise, and, and and the speed with which it's done is is is, is quite quite extraordinary, really. So um, I think we both agree on that one, Roy.
0: Well, gentlemen, I'd like to um, I'd just like to turn the conversation perhaps a little bit more controversial, um, because. The NHS buildings, for example, as I see, in the infrastructure itself, uh, a lot of it isn't fit for purpose. And the government have been spending a lot of time selling off a lot of assets, including our own beloved nurses' homes. But one thing that I do want to address and ask you both is because of what our audience are telling us, and it's our audience that will be watching this today. And many of our audience are expressing huge concerns and suspicion over the nhs and um as i was talking of testing and roy uh, was talking of screening many of our audiences are, are saying they don't trust the nhs that that, that whilst money in financial terms uh, i.e pound sterling and dollars may be spoken about a lot data often isn't and they feel as though some of these tests that they're being asked to do repeatedly repeatedly getting text messages letters asking them to take tests or to go for screening whichever you prefer they are being bombarded with and they say that it's just they they view it as the nhs is opportunity to grab their data because most of them say we're very healthy we don't want to be screened because what if a false positive comes back and we know um from a lot of research and a lot of empirical papers and we've we've only recently been speaking to dr chris flowers with regards to this that there are a lot of false positives that people are frightened to literally frightened to death because they're dying on the waiting list when they're told that they have a condition that they might not have but then they're put on the end of a seven million waiting list um And some of our viewers, and I know, Roy, you've got a section in your newsletter, in your e-letter that you send to managers, a confidential, um, a a little, you know, if you want to contact me in in, in confidentiality to talk. Um, And a lot of our viewers are writing to us, some of them confidentially, but others because they want their stories heard. But they're they're going through absolute horror stories in the NHS. Only today, I got uh, an absolute tragic email from someone whose mother-in-law had um, had a fall that the family weren't told about. Just on a routine, she was having uh, a chemotherapy for uh, terminal cancer, and she had a fall. Nobody told her about the fall. We're getting families that are writing to us that saying their their loved ones are on an assisted a death plan or that they've they've been somehow marked for do not resuscitation when the family haven't been consulted uh, by either physicians or anybody from the hospital and so we've got a lot of suspicion within our audience going going on and you know the stories that i'm getting and some of the emails perhaps we might be able to share with you Roy so that you're getting to see what we're hearing about but since the whole lucy letby case which i'm i'm not going to go into because we're we're doing a lot of work on that and i know that you've spoken you've both spoken about it but when you look at regulation of managers you have to say to yourself well who is who are replying to these relatives when they're they're asking desperately for help who is taking the decisions to put patients on do not resuscitation notices, is it policy that's coming from the managers, or is this coming from direct from the clinicians themselves? And then we we also know that Matt Hancock, whilst he was in uh, power as uh, health secretary, kind of shelved plans to regulate uh, hospital managers because hospital managers aren't regulated, such as the same as doctors and nurses. However. My comment to that would be, in my experience, looking at regulators en masse, um, going from Ofcom to Ofwat to the MHRA, I don't believe actually regulation works, and I think perhaps it inhibits people from speaking up. And we're worried at the UK column that we're getting a lot of our audience with horrific stories coming from coming within the NHS, and we're also getting a lot of um nhs professionals that are coming to us that are saying they're not being listened to they're trying to speak up they're trying to make their voices heard but they're not being listened to now i know there's an awful lot in there to unpack um so I, my apologies for that but i i just know that as we're speaking our audience are going to be saying but why isn't debbie asking about this and there's a million other things that i would like to to talk to you about, including tick boxes, yeah. but perhaps that's for another time. So there's a lot of suspicion around the NHS. Can I throw it first to you, Roy, for your comments, and then come to you, Duncan, for yours?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, as far as data is concerned, as far as I know, um, I touch wood when I say this, I don't think there's ever been a data breach uh, that's attributed to the NHS. I don't think there has been. Um, uh, and people's data is pretty safe. I think there's been a debate, and there still is, whether anonymized data can be used um, in such a way as to aid the forecasting and prediction of health and finding out. I mean, there are five things and they're the, that we really want to know, isn't it, really, uh, what, what makes us sick. What fixes up? What does it cost? Did it work? And do we want to do it again? Those five things. And a lot of the answers to those five things will be in the, in the data that uh, that are our health records. Um, you can, of course, opt out from having your data um, uh, shared anywhere. You can just do that via your GP. And there's a huge Oh, can I interrupt of... there
0: for two seconds, Roy? Yeah. Can I interrupt there? Because sure. with regards to opting out there is more than one opt out so if you opt out with your gp you're only opting out from sharing your gp records you would have to similarly opt out of many other schemes within the nhs which is called a sludge technique because they're relying on people <laughs> either to forget to opt out but also yeah. similarly this opting out um we cannot opt out of the nhs and even though we might opt out today and we might send a letter to our gp today that only opts us out from sharing information from today onwards. It doesn't opt us out, even though it could be anonymized from data going back decades, that information still can be shared. And the question is, is who is it being shared with and where is it going? However anonymized it is and how much are the British government receiving for sharing that data with seemingly the world?
1: I think it is likely that the government will want to capitalise in some way or other on the fact that this country is unique in that it has health records of people from cradle to grave going back from the 5th of July, 1948, and actually before that. So it is a really, as far as research is concerned, it's hugely valuable. Setting aside any monetary value, it is hugely valuable. And, you know, I mean, my... My data on its own is valueless. Uh, my data compared to Duncan's might be interesting in that, you know, we're different, different ages and different backgrounds and what have you, and our difference might be interesting. But my data compared to all the other 70-year-old geezers that are in this country is absolutely priceless when you're trying to treat people in their 70s and 80s and elder care. So there is a huge value in sharing our data now some people object on principle to sharing their data uh, and that's fine and there are ways for them not to do it some people um, think that they're that they're in some way going to be uh, identified um, and i think the nhs has made a rod for its own back there because instead of they talk about pseudonymizing data and just to kind of try and cover that off quickly pseudonymizing data if it is you For someone's data to be valuable, you have to have the whole pathway of their data. Um, And to pseudonymize it, it means you have to take the identifiable markers out of it. And now there are some people who are clever enough, and it is true, uh, that they could reconstruct the data in such a way as to try and discover who it is. Now, if they discovered who Roy Lilly was, I, I couldn't give a toss. But there are some celebrities famous people and what have you who, do, who don't want to be identified in that way or perhaps people of uh, perhaps a young woman who's had a termination earlier in life she doesn't want that identified or perhaps someone with a mental health issue so but i mean it, it is an outside edge possibility that it could happen but it's it's you know it's it's unlikely but there's there's no question about it that all our data taken as a whole globally is extremely useful to figure out what yeah. makes us sick and what fixes us up. So it's worth doing uh, if we can find a way that reassures the public in in, in doing in it.
2: That? Can sure. I in on that? Because I th- I mean, uh, uh, at one point in, in my career, a couple of hundred years ago, I was involved in uh, a, a regional cancer network. And certainly, the data that we were putting into the the cancer registry was absolutely invaluable and and people looked to the United Kingdom in terms of its its the data that we were trawling and extracting uh, uh, very anonymized um, uh, to build up a library of, of of treatments and and symptoms and all the rest of it and and, and that data registry that cancer registry was absolutely invaluable in terms of developing treatment programs so i would be very hesitant in advising people to not participate in data trawling uh, data mining and stuff like that i think it's it's absolutely critical to determining uh, future patterns of of, health care development service development you know in the same way that the 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 uh Consent the census, the 10 year census, you know, I mean, that has valuable data in it as well. So uh, I, I think it, it, it's a mistaken uh, mistaken take to, to think that it's being um, inappropriately used and, and cannibalized for profit or whatever. I think my experience is, is that that is not the case. Sorry, I interrupted.
1: No, no, I think no, it's actually. an important point to make. Uh, and and it's also, it's the same is true with pharmaceutical companies. As drugs become more esoteric and more complex, it's getting harder and harder to recruit people into drug trials. Um, and, and that's very difficult as well now. And uh, that's why a lot of the drug trials now are, are taking place uh, overseas in India, China and places like that. It is very difficult. And, and then, I, I mean, I'm conscious we're coming up to the buffers of time, but um, uh, you talked to just briefly about uh, the regulation of managers. Well, look we don't want to get into the letby thing because I expect that's going to be a whole program on its own. but if we ju- if I could just say it's worth pointing out that all the key players in the let issue at the Countess of Chester were all subject to regulation. The chief executive was a former nurse. The nurse director is, of course on the register, the GMs, the uh, NMC. Uh, and the medical director uh, was on uh, the register as well. It's not regulation that makes us safer. In fact, it it often doesn't because people will cover up their mistakes if they think they're going to prejudice their registration. This is totally the wrong way to do it. And it's interesting that the day that we're meeting, the day that we're recording this, uh, NHS England have got a – a group of chairman and chief executives in, in london talking about the prospect of regulating managers and the thought that nhs england is going to regulate managers is just horrifying uh, marking their <laughs> own homework i mean it's just bonkers Not and man. i think you know they've lost their remaining marble and the final thing i'm going to say and then i promise i will shut up is that you were talking about buildings falling down and all the rest of it in in one of the comments you made is just this has just come up on my newsfeed. Schools in England uh, must shut buildings made with concrete prone to collapse until safety work is done. Uh, and so this has just come out before the, the more than 100 schools are being contacted before the start of the new term. And that means somehow or other between now and the start of the new term, which I think is the week after next, the headmasters have got to find somewhere to house all their kids because they can't use their schools. I only raised that because there are 20 hospitals in the NHS that are made with the same autoclave concrete and they're being held up with acro props. So perhaps we're going to see the hospitals closed as well. Anyway, on that happy note, I'll shut up.
0: (laughs) Roy, thank you for that, because I I was actually going to talk about the hospitals and the concrete, so you've done that for me. So I am looking at the time and um, I'm very aware of the time. And I always like to give you gentlemen, the last word. And I am going to give you both the last words. I'm gonna start off with Roy and then I'll finish with Duncan. But you know what, on this occasion, I hope you don't mind, but I'm gonna give myself a last word as well after what I've heard from you both this afternoon. And what I think our audience, because our audience, um, they are very, very concerned and they're very concerned that people are are ignoring what is actually going on in the NHS and my mailbag is full and I would like to share some of my mailbag with both of you actually because it might be it might be topics that perhaps you're not seeing elsewhere so my 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 response on the NHS is that when we look back at the beginning of the NHS actually the NHS was cooked up with the whole of the social welfare reform back in 1942 with William Beveridge. And it was Nye Bevan that actually rolled out the plan of the NHS. So the whole plan was actually um, being unwrapped in 1942 with William Beveridge and David Rockefeller. And with regards to the fact of data being extremely valuable, I completely accept that. And I can see where research needs to be done. However, what I worry about and what our audience are worried about is the nefarious intent to which data sharing can be used. And if data sharing is used with good intent and if clinical trials are done And we'll go back to his. I mean, maybe we'll do a whole new program on clinical trials because we seem to be going 100 day mission, accelerating everything. Uh, Clinical trials aren't what I remember clinical trials to be. However, that's another program. But I do believe that the UK's unique selling point is the NHS and that our data is extremely valuable to the rest of the world, but also to the UK government in order for the UK to become a leader in global uh, super science. So my only real criticism and concern, well, not my only criticism and concern, but my criticism and concerns at the moment surrounds the many stories we're hearing from, from people, patients, professionals, managers as well, paramedics, doctors, nurses, Um, that all is far from well within the NHS and that there is a huge amount of suspicion. Um, And I hope very much we can carry on having a debate to share our information with you to try and come up with some kind of solution because all three of us are a similar generation. We're all dinosaurs. We remember what the NHS was like (laughs) back in the day and it was full of laughter and it was full of love and it was full of flowers and i'd like to think that we could bring that back so without further ado looking at the clock roy can i come to you first for your last words and thank you so yes. much for agreeing to speak to us
1: that's right it's i've enjoyed it it's uh, it's always worth giving these uh, uh uh these problems and what have you a, a trot around the block because you know, you always learn something and it's always worth talking about them, and, and sometimes doing away with some of the myths that uh, could. Okay, is it fit for the future? Well, to make it fit, I think, FIT, I'd say we've got to invest in the front line. We absolutely have to get the workforce thing sorted out. It's far from sorted out. We've got a workforce plan that's ranging over 15 years. That's far too long. We've got to think again about how we train, how we train people and what we train them to do. And I think we're training people to carry out work as we recognized it, you know, 20 years ago when the work of the future will be very different. So that's my F in fit. The I stands for investment. Um, I think you you can't have an NHS without investing in it. And it doesn't matter, as I've said earlier, whether you take your taxes out of your left hand pocket and your insurance premiums out of your right hand pocket, the citizen still has to pay. And if you look around at some of the systems in the world where the system where the citizens do pay, and they have insurance based and other systems, that doesn't work. Um, investing in our systems and investing the way we do things is really very important. And finally, technology. The T in FIT is technology. Um, the, Duncan's absolutely right. There's a whole raft of things that we're doing really manually and by hand that uh, really, we didn't ought to be doing. I mean, simple things like nurses going around to taking uh, observations they're still doing it manually, they're still writing the notes, which most of it can be done automatically and with Bluetooth. So it's all of those. So to keep the NHS fit, those are my three things. F for frontline, I for investment and T for technology, that will keep the NHS fit.
0: Thank you, Roy. Duncan, over to you.
2: Yeah, I, I'm afraid I don't have a, a whizzy acronym like a like, uh, learned colleague Roy does. I mean, my My consideration of the future of the NHS and is it, fit is based on two things. Over the last several decades, uh, there has evolved, by design and by accident, a massive amount of complexity, self-inflicted complexity that is serving nobody. It's not serving the clients who are becoming more and more suspicious. There's an inequality of hope in terms of accessing the NHS. I think that the complexity of it uh, has overtaken the 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 capacity of the human mind to accommodate, understand, and make sense of, let alone for the patient, but also for the people who operate and function within it. And then I think, secondly, the NHS will never be fit for purpose until we get the political paradigm unbundled, unravelled, and get the politicians back in their little boxes uh, and persuade them that really, the, the, the health and well-being of the nation is not a political football that they have whim and fancy to interfere with whenever their career uh, feels like it should need a bit of a boost. So until we've got those two things sorted out, I'm afraid all the fanciness around investments and collapsing buildings and all the rest of it are found out until we get those sorted out. And I'm sorry if we, if I'm ending on a bit of a desperate note, But uh, I just can't see any way forward.
0: Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Dr Duncan White, Roy Lilly, the debate will continue. Thank you and goodbye.